What's up? I'm Alex Clark, and you're listening to the audio version of my show, Politics, powered by Turning Point USA. To fully experience the conservatee, make sure you're following the show at our home base on Instagram, where we post our episodes daily at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Okay, cute servatives, let the games begin. The name Ruby Ridge is enough to send chills down the spines of those who know its story. For those who are unfamiliar, it's a name that incites curiosity. What is Ruby Ridge? Who lived it and what happened to them? These are all questions I will answer today. This story is a tragic tale of how one family found themselves on the top of a mountain where their lives would take a dramatic turn. It's a story of just how far government overreach has gone in modern American history. Today, more than ever before, it needs to be told. I'm Alex Clark and this is Ruby Ridge Siege, Mayhem and Massacre on the Mountaintop. In the early 1990s, the Weavers were just your average American family. Randy and Vicki Weaver were God-fearing people with a desire to raise their children in a remote part of Idaho, away from the government they believed would be instrumental in ushering in the end of the world. Randy and Vicki Weaver married in Iowa in 1971. He had enlisted in the Green Berets before their wedding, and Vicki had always been fiercely independent. They were a bit of a match made in heaven because they shared the same religious views, skepticism of the government, and the idea that the world was going to end and they needed to be prepared. They also wanted to live in a place removed from society. Five years after their wedding, they had their first child, Sarah, and eventually welcomed Samuel and Rachel. During the years the Weavers were starting their family, Vicki began claiming that she was having visions of a mountaintop where their family would live in order to protect themselves from the apocalypse. They actively prepared. Randy collected a lot of firearms and Vicki studied survivalist skills. In the meantime, they also started a Bible study, which only fueled their anxiety over a Zionist organized government. Yikes. In 1983, they acted on their worry and bought 20 acres in Idaho, which we now know as Ruby Ridge. One year later, after constructing their home themselves, they officially became mountain residents. Vicki took up gardening and they homeschooled their kids. Then they took in Kevin Harris, a rough around the edges teenager. They were isolated, not just in their beliefs, but physically. All they had was one another. So Randy went looking for a community they could join. One of the most controversial elements to this story is Randy's involvement with the Aryan nations. And well, obviously, this is rightfully controversial of him given the immorality of the group's beliefs and its blatant racism. One could argue that had he stayed away from this group, the incident at Ruby Ridge may have never occurred. You are the company you keep after all. Some say that Randy primarily joined the group in efforts to socialize his family. They were new to the area and especially isolated due to their location of their house. Their interactions were few in the grand scheme of things. Randy even insists that he did nothing illegal with the group itself. He did, however, act criminally when he got desperate for money. The Weavers were not wealthy. They lived a humble life in the mountains and at times subsided off their garden and whatever else they could forge for themselves. Still, they were struggling. And so when Randy finally decided to come up with a solution, he unfortunately turned to the worst person in the Aryan nation to make an illegal sale of an illegal object to, an ATF informant. Randy sold the informant two sawed off shotguns, which is a federal offense. I don't condone the company he kept and I don't condone him breaking the law whatsoever, but I also can't imagine how he felt when he 
learned that he had landed himself in hot water with the very people he moved to the mountains to avoid. Randy wasn't one to flippantly commit crimes. This one instance seemed to be an isolated event. His decisions were totally wrong. But you move to the literal middle of nowhere and your biggest nemesis, big government, is still there, in secret. And of all the terrible people they could pick from, you happen to make the perfect wrong decision. Life choices truly have terrifying consequences, ones that are realized quickly and others that have ripple effects down the line. So he committed a federal crime and needed to be punished, right? Like I said, Randy was surrounded by some bad people. He wasn't really a concern for officials. In fact, he became way more useful to them as they attempted to infiltrate the Aryan nations more and more. The ATF gave him two options, become an informant himself and the charges would be dropped, or face the consequences of his illegal sale. Randy basically told the government to get lost by denying the offer and refusing to work alongside them against the Aryan nations. The Weaver's daughter, Sarah, recalled in an interview that as her parents made their way home in the snow with their kids, they stopped to help what looked like a couple who had broken down. The couple however, were actually government officials there to arrest Randy. Both he and Vicky were wrestled down in the cold and Randy was taken to jail. He ended up posting their mountaintop home as Bond. Randy was now in a far graver predicament than when he sold the sawed-off shotguns. His refusal to cooperate certainly wasn't going to help his case, and he could not afford to lose everything. He was assigned a court date for the gun charges, but never made it in. Reports say that he missed the court date because he was given the wrong date. All of this sounds both fishy and convenient, but maybe the truth is just that his skepticism of the system made him a no-show. Who knows? Whatever the case, Randy's predicament was now in the hands of the U.S. Marshals. The Weaver family isolation went on for 17 months until their lives changed forever. Some choices have ripple effects that only show themselves months later. In this case, it was going to cost the Weaver family everything. On August 21st, 1992, U.S. Marshals were staked out and prepared to ambush the Weaver property to finally arrest Randy. Remember, the property was isolated in the mountains, not far from the Canadian border. I imagine it was quiet enough to hear sticks cracking beneath feet as people scaled the landscape. It was summer. The Weavers were more isolated than ever before. They'd spent a long winter alone on the mountain with their children. Vicky had even birthed their daughter, Elisheba, in isolation. The tension of knowing that Randy Randy had a target on his back was mounting, and in one day, that very target became lethal. I wonder if the Weavers knew they were being watched. Had they felt, in all of their suspicion of the government, that they were watched way before they moved to the mountains? Did they feel like they were being watched before Randy was found out by an undercover agent? Just think about all of that pent-up anxiety. The feeling that at any moment you could be ambushed in some way, you just don't know when or how. If they expected the government to show up on their doorstep, I doubt they ever thought that it would all start the way it did. So on a summer morning, U.S. Marshals forced their way onto the Weaver's property, fully armed. They were clearly ready for a confrontation. I can't be sure what their plan was, if they were going to storm the house or if they were really going to try and capture Randy as subtly as possible. It's been reported that they were merely there to scope out the situation further. Also, I have to know, what did they think of children being on the premises? They'd already been watching them with cameras. Who did they think they'd encounter first if they wandered too far onto the property? The Weaver's dog was the first to sense trouble on the property alerting both the household and the U.S. Marshals. Randy and Sam Weaver and Kevin Harris went to see what the commotion was. Sarah, the eldest daughter, decided to go home 
Within minutes, there was gunfire, multiple shots. Billy Deegan, one of the marshals, had been hit. The Weaver family claims that Randy, Sam, and Harris came upon officials donned in their uniforms and that the dog was shot and killed first. As a retaliation, Sam allegedly shot at the marshals, who then allegedly shot back and killed him. The marshals, however, claim that Kevin shot first and killed Billy Deegan. What actually happened may always stay on top of that mountain, stuck in time that fateful morning. Sam's death changed the Weaver's lives more than anything else had. Now, they weren't just a family with a fugitive father, but they, as a whole, were a grieving family that had just lost a child. Their isolation was only furthered if such a thing was possible. On the other end of the situation, the case changed hands yet again. Now, the FBI was involved, and Randy Weaver was basically the most wanted person in the country. The FBI was ready to confront the Weavers with everything it had. In fact, agents were permitted to use deadly force against the Weavers. Next day, a grieving Randy and Kevin went outside to check on Sam's body, which had been stored in a shed. Within moments, a gunshot rang out the property and got Randy. Traumatized Vicky began screaming for her wounded husband and Kevin to come back to the house. She stood at the door of her home, baby in her arms, ushering in Sarah, Randy, and Kevin, when another shot blasted through the entrance of the home. With the blast came a splatter all over Sarah's face. Then she realized what had happened as her mom, Vicky, dropped to the floor directly behind her with her baby sister still in hand. At the time, Sarah was just a teenager. Randy picked the baby up and the surviving members of the household tried to compose themselves as snipers laid in wait outside. Eventually, officials found Sam's body in the shed and word traveled down the mountain that a child had been murdered. Something that's very suspicious about the situation is how little the government let on about what was actually going on. To some extent, I understand that the public doesn't need to know everything about an active case, yet from this vantage point, it looks like there was a massive miscommunication, not just with the public, but within the government agencies. Even more grim, authorities didn't seem to realize that Vicky had been murdered too. Officials would call out to Vicky through speakerphones, only adding to the grief and stress of those still inside the Weaver home. It seemed cruel and insensitive. Finally, Randy had had enough and began yelling back, a dramatic shift from his usual silence. Officials felt that appealing to Vicky would help them get to Randy. Meanwhile, her body lay dead in the kitchen. Okay, pause. How? How could the FBI not know that they had killed Vicky? She was killed by world-class snipers who know their target from insane distances and do not miss. They are trained to fire accurately. It is beyond me that she could get shot so accurately and no one knew about it. And then they ask her to bring the kids out with pancakes while her remaining children, her daughters, sit inside terrified of losing anyone else. I'm just so sick over this. There were hundreds of feds outside and only five civilians inside, three of which were children. Anyway, the FBI made attempts to negotiate, much to no success. The media coverage raged on with one-sided narratives. There was little to no compassion for this family. Again, Randy had committed a crime, but this was also an average American family that had now been through unreasonable trauma. There was no world where he would ever trust the government before the siege began, and there was no way they'd get an inkling of his trust ever now. The FBI had to look beyond its team and get on Randy's level. Cue Bo Gritz. He'd been a presidential candidate and Green Beret like Randy, Bo was more than eager to help. Eight days after the ordeal began on Ruby Ridge, Bo was taken up the mountain to negotiate with Randy, who recognized him immediately. One of the first things Randy told Bo was that the FBI had not just badly wounded Randy and Kevin, but that Vicky had been killed. If ever there was a time for the FBI to start some self-reflection, that was it. And now the public knew just how dire this hopeless situation was. The next day, Bo negotiated with Randy to allow Kevin to leave the house so that he could receive care. It's likely 
Kevin would have died soon had Randy not let him leave. Then Bo brought a body bag for Vicky. The end of the ordeal was near and the grieving weavers knew it. Bo went inside and found Randy with the girls in tears. On the very last day, Randy informed Bo that his daughters refused to come out and would only exit if killed by authorities. Bo was not having that. The door then opened and Randy surrendered with the girls. The siege was over. The Weaver family held hands with Bo and they began their descent down the mountain they'd been on for so many months. Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris both went to trial for murder charges. However, in the middle of their trial, government overreach, once again over firearms, was underway in Waco, Texas. Even more people, including children, died. The jury was specifically instructed to not pay attention to Waco. But on July 8th, 1993, the long deliberation came to an end when Randy and Kevin were acquitted of the murder charges. All Randy was convicted of was failure to make his court appearance from two years prior. Eventually, Randy was compensated $3 million for the deaths of Vicky and Sam, and the sniper who killed Vicky was charged with manslaughter, only for the charges to be dropped. Randy and his daughters are still alive today. Sarah is perhaps the most recognizable of the family. She wrote a book with her dad, and she's spoken out the most about that fatal siege and the lives of her mom and brother. Her faith in God, she says, has brought healing to her life. I wanted to tell this story today because it's one that people my age don't seem to be familiar with. I think it's a huge lesson in nuance. You can view Randy's actions as criminal and we should all condemn his involvement with the Aryan nations, but you can do both of those while still seeing how far the government overreached. Randy's actions had consequences, but he didn't fire the guns that killed his son and wife. There were around 400 officials against this man on a mountain who just wanted to be left alone. And in the end, the very legal system that went after him with an iron fist acquitted him of a murder charge and left him with a lifetime of grief. America is a great country, but no system is perfect, and too much government never ends well for innocent American citizens. The more we tell stories like these, the more likely we are to learn from past mistakes, see situations from all sides, even if it makes us uncomfortable, and know how and when to spot government overreach. Tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, I have a treat for you, another pop doc. This one, all about the Waco siege, because it's Halloween week, and nothing is scarier than big government, or should I say spoopy. If you're really into the story, storytelling episodes, you will love my new podcast on Spotify and Apple called The Spillover, where I interview people with jaw-dropping stories just like this one. Who knows? Maybe I'll reach out to Sarah Weaver and see if she can come on. The best way to support politics is to like this episode. Let me know in the comments if you knew about this case and what you think. Share this pop doc to your stories and hit that save button. It's pop culture without the propaganda every single day. I'm Alex Clark, and this is Politics. Hopefully you found the conservatee scalding today. Don't forget if you want to get the full Poplitics experience to follow us on Instagram at Poplitics, where you can watch the episodes and see all the fun clips. You can find me on Instagram too, at Real Alex Clark. Love you, mean it. Bye.